welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting as one of the planets orbiting the Now Playing Network. Here over at the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, their career touchstones, their cinematic masterpieces, their other cinematic masterpieces, and yet more masterpieces that can be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's entire body of classic, legendary films. Come join us on the film journey. This episode, we are taking a look at the films of Akira Kurosawa. Howdy, folks. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we can't uh, be more enthusiastic to delve in on uh, this guy's legendary work pretty much any director would kill to have a single film that matches one of the many that Akira Kurosawa had managed to make, several of which we'll be talking about today. But not all of which, because Akira Kurosawa has made so many masterpieces, so many brilliant works, that they span his 50-year career of over 30 films. And so we're going to talk about this giant of world cinema in two parts. Today, we will go into his early films and lead in on his take of Shakespeare's Macbeth in his film Throne of Blood. Right. But first, because for many people who are just starting to explore Japanese films, Akira Kurosawa is such an overarching presence that for a lot of people, he's not only the first, but the only Japanese director they may know because his films are so popular internationally. But he is actually part of a larger tradition, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Japanese cinema getting us to Kurosawa. That's right, because he's far from the sole amazing director to be found in Japan. Kurosawa comes to us in the 40s, but Japanese cinema is one of the earliest cinemas developed throughout the world. They started in the silent era, and in fact, their silent era went a bit longer than ours as silent films stayed popular through a good section of the 30s. And one of the big distinguishing points of Japanese films is the popularity of the period piece that mostly features samurais, which were so important in the history of Japan. And these films are called Jidegekai. <laughs> Jidegekai. Jidegekai. And a subset of those films are basically what we think of as uh, samurai sword fight films called uh, Chambara films. And that, that name comes from the sound that swords are supposed to make as they clank against each other uh, <laughs> made into a word. Oh, that's that, that's funny. Kind of like reminds me how like some people are now referring to like Star Wars films as, oh, it's those pew, 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 pew movies right, where you're right. firing on the lasers. <laughs> and so there were so many of these, just about half of the films 
coming out of Japan were Jedegekai films. Some stories were so legendary, they were made multiple times, one uh, called The 47 Ronin. But the big breakthrough for samurai films was a film called Humanity and Paper Balloons, which came out in 1937. What I've read is that it was the one of the first films to really go into depth on the political significance and character development in the samurai film. And in the 30s, a number of very acclaimed art house directors came to the fore, all of which preceded Kurosawa, many of which also became his peers. So the most famous of these are three directors, Yasujiro Ozu, who was known for these uh, small family comedy dramas. Right, and uh, for not being able to find a tripod to put the camera, which was often <laughs> uh, filmed things from a low position. Right, and uh, so Ozu had some great silent films like I Was Born But, although he would get his most acclaim in the 50s at the same time Kurosawa was getting his acclaim with movies like Tokyo Story and Late Spring. Mm-hmm. Then you have Kenji Mizuguchi, who at in the 30s broke through with a film called Osaka Elegy and a really wonderful film from 1939 I, I'd recommend called uh, The Story of Last Chrysanthemums. But he, too, reached kind of a peak with Kurosawa in the 50s with films like Sancho the Bailiff and Ugetsu. And much of Mizuguchi's films focused on the plight of prostitutes. So that was a big theme for him. Hmm. Another very acclaimed director whose focus was on women's films was Mikio Narusa, who uh, in the 30s started with the film called Wife Be Like a Rose, but would eventually become more acclaimed for movies like Scattered Clouds and A Woman Ascends the Stairs. I mention these only because if Kurosawa is the most prominent of Japanese directors to us in the West, he was certainly not the first, but often when people discuss his films and these other films, these other filmmakers are considered more quote-unquote Japanese than Kurosawa because Kurosawa had such a strong influence of Western films. He was a big fan of John Ford and other American directors. Yeah, and he also, throughout his films, he had this feature of individuality and both the values and detriments of individual perspectives mm-hmm. that were, that ran a little counter to uh, the themes of community that pervaded a Japanese culture. And he was also fairly critical of how Japanese culture had uh, moved in the post-war period, too. Right. So Kurosawa, before he started directing his own films, did just about everything else you could do on a film in Japan. He was an assistant director. He was a screenwriter for you know almost 30 movies before he got his big break in uh, 1943. Confession of depression 
that film is called Sanshiro Sugata, or Judo Saga. And it's the story of a young man looking for martial arts masters who finds one doing this new practice of judo. He's a quick study, and he is soon attracting challenges and fights, but can he control his own violent nature and become a worthy judo master himself? (laughs) So... When we started approaching Kurosawa, obviously there are films that are legendary, but some films that are not talked about as much are his earliest films. And and I don't know about you, Al, but the biggest surprise to me about his earliest films is I I didn't really think a lot of them were that great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was uh, uh, quite something that I found kind of surprising myself. You get this impression, especially of someone who has been such well-known as an auteur as Kurosawa has, that he was trafficking in these themes that he did so well in his masterful films that they're all over the place in his earlier films. And for the most part, at least to my impression, not really. (laughs) Um, Sugata has some parts of what would bring to bear in later um, uh, Kurosawa films, but they're here and there. And in Sagata, it is in the context of a very, very standard template of a guy learning a martial arts who's then tested and leads to a final confrontation to prove that his variety of judo is vastly superior to another person's version of judo, which is slightly different, I guess. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But well, it in was that... Ju- judo versus jujitsu. Exactly. The... Right. Yeah. Exactly. Now, however, that confrontation is presented as the most epic martial arts confrontation of all time because it's held in a field that, uh, that the camera has this emphasis on the gigantic expanse of sky and the moving fields of wheat that are being um, undulating due to the wind. And it's showing this co- this martial arts conflict in the most, like, elemental of nature terms. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Kurosawa brings out in a lot of his upcoming films. Right. You're going to see weather play this huge role in every film and the uh the gathering storm clouds of this film might be visually the most impressive moment of it i thought generally it looked really good visually another thing that was present right from the beginning was the constantly moving camera which especially compared to some other japanese directors at the time kurosawa did with just far more enthusiasm <laughs> that's true and then in at least in his first film you also get glimpses of that there is a not an in, intent but there is a consideration behind what you're looking at on screen like mm-hmm. to just give one example when the master and the apprentice are uh, having these their arguments the the scenery behind the the apprentice is more blank and the scenery behind the master is more defined. And often the screen is like split, which having, which has an object like a Mm -hmm. post or a beam to separate the two. You're seeing that Kurosawa is starting to look at 
where you put people in a movie screen is important. Right. He's being very careful about what's on the screen. Unfortunately, at this stage, he's not being quite as careful about directing actors because this film, and I think a number of these early films, are marred by... You know, over-the-top performances by American standards actually are a thing people have to get used to in Japanese films because there often is broader acting. But in the early Kurosawa films, they were broad even compared to later Japanese films, later Kurosawa films, and without the subtleties. The main character here, the young man training to be the judo master, pretty much comes off as just this dopey guy. Yeah, he's a blandly likable but not very bright-appearing kind of person. I guess he would kind of be the uh, Japanese version of if you saw uh, Ashton Kuster try to be an Aikido master or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) You're just, okay, while you don't want him to lose per se, you're not particularly involved as to whether he needs to triumph in any great deal. (laughs) Right, it follows very much the hero's journey of Joseph Campbell fame. And I even felt at this stage, as Mm. as, as many of you know, Star Wars and George Lucas was very influenced by Kurosawa films. And there's a scene here where uh, part of his training is to hold on to a post in a swamp. And as I was watching it, I'm just like, Lucas saw this. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this turned out to be an incredibly popular film in Japan. There was a sequel. Directed by him? Directed by him, yes. uh, Sanshiro Sugata Part 2, which was, as a lot of sequels are, just kind of a lesser version of the original. The big advances of the sequel was bringing in uh, some American actors to have uh, judo versus boxing. Oh, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a chance to see that myself. So you how much you, did it feel that like Duracell was kind of going through the motions? Pretty much mostly. Okay. And, and then the main uh, antagonists were karate masters who were also, mm. that was also a form of fighting not in the original. One thing though that was there from the very first was a uh, a film technique that Kurosawa became na- known for and utilized throughout his career, which is uh, the wipe. Basically, instead of a cut or a fade out, the wipe is where very quickly the uh, image on the screen is replaced by another image. And if you played it you know, in slow motion, you'd see both images uh, on screen at the same time. It's a technique that can lead to some very, very fun effects, such as if you're wiping in one particular direction, and whereas characters are running in a completely different direction, Mm -hmm. say. But so it's kind of surprising that that has seemed to just be the providence of uh, Star Wars films to this day, and has not uh, not continued. My favorite wipe, by the way, is the heart wipe um, uh, done from. uh, (laughs) <laughs> which is uh, most most probably done on a on a wacky episode of David Lynch. <laughs> so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise in the historical context why these earlier films might not reach the heights that Kurosawa would get to because we are now in the middle of World War II. 
everything from the Japanese government is going towards the war effort, including the film industry. So there is a huge level of censorship going on. There's a huge level of government interference. So during this period, Kurosawa was not free to make the films he really wanted to make. In fact, his next film he made was a uh, propaganda film called The Most Beautiful in 1944. And this is a film about women factory workers. And it should be noted that as Kurosawa is doing this film for the war effort, he is not for the emperor. He is not for this regime. He does, to be fair, give an extra level of complexity to the different travails that the ladies do in the war effort, the problems that they encounter, the, the about missing home, about the uh, kind of dedication how it puts a strain on their relationships with their colleagues at the plant that they work, and how they even can burn themselves out on the mm-hmm. job. But uh, apart from apart from showing just the vast expanses of the machinery where these ladies are expected to work, especially an area where they're adjusting the lenses for bomber sites, where everyone has to be seated in an authoritarian line, there uh, very little of Kurosawa's techniques are there to be found, and the characterizations, like you had said from his earlier films, also don't have a level of robustness as. This or that character is effectively one note to raise one particular issue, and and there's very little in terms of like dramatic arcs mm-hmm. coming in. Yes, yeah, sure. Then there's the last film we we got to see from this period, The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail, which uh, came out in 1945 and was based on a very famous. Japanese story that there have been many versions of. And so while this was very unfamiliar to us, to a Japanese audience of the time, it would have been a story they knew. Oh, so it's kind of like maybe the multiple takes on the Christmas Carol that we get um, uh, every year and in multiple formats, just something that people are basically familiar with the general beats, but people just experiment on Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, this particular film is... An unfortunate example of cinematic food processing because it was originally a longer cut that had been censored by the Japanese film board. And then, despite only an hour long, it comes across like a standard half hour that's been expanded and padded beyond any reasonable (laughs) justification. Well, there is a particular reason for that, which is that so much screen time is taken up by the comic relief. Now, I want you guys listening to just keep in mind that we're both fans of Akira Kurosawa, and in some of his films, I would happily watch that their entire three-plus-hour length and then turn on the DVD and watch them right away. And this is a film that, despite being barely over an hour long, I had to take two breaks and a walk around the (laughs) block to finish. And this guy is a major, major reason. Imagine if Ace Ventura Pet Detective was being played by Jerry Lewis and... Some stand-up comic was trying to use that as part of a bit where Ace Ventura, played by Jerry Lewis, goes into a haunted house. So he has a whole bit about it that's 
10 or 15 minutes long. And then right before he's going on stage, the master of ceremonies tells him, okay, that bit, if you can do that in five seconds, (laughs) that's what this guy does Every single time the camera cuts to him, he puts in 15 different expressions in the span of five or 10 seconds of, of, of slack-jawed fear, bug-eyed despair, um, uh, rivers of tears of sadness, um, uh, gales of giant-mouthed laughter, and cycles through these in a random order to which you literally want to fire a tranquilizer dart at the guy. Just stop whatever you're doing. Just stop doing it. <laughs> It's a problem. Uh, (laughs) Another problem with this film is that nothing really seems to happen. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Because in about the middle section of this hour-long movie becomes a a sort of standoff at a border area where some people are guarding the gates. And there's a very, very long, drawn-out questions of, Hmm, you appear to be these monks, but do you know this tenant of monkdom? And leading to someone's long-winded attempt at explanation. And while this incredibly overdone, drawn-out thing is happening, it's keep being interspersed by these (laughs) manic episodes of hysteria by our erstwhile comic relief. So it manages to be incredibly boring and wearying and frazzled at the exact same time, leading to a thoroughly unpleasant experience for most of its runtime, which is something I found just shocking from a Kurosawa film. For sure. And if we're being a little hard on uh, a Kurosawa's earlier films, we're actually in some good company because another person who was critical of these films was Akira Kurosawa, who basically said that his next film, in his mind, was like his first film because it was the first one he was able to make uh, to have more control over its production and more fulfill his vision than these movies that were made during the war did. Yeah, that film was Drunken Angel in 1948. The Yakuza gangster goes to the um, titular alcoholically inclined doctor, played by a Kurosawa regular, Takashi Shimura. He pays him a visit to get a bullet removed. This starts an unusual uh, relationship between the two, and their two worlds clash as their town cesspool continues to bubble ominously. In that film, Kurosawa kind of came into his own and began a decades-long partnership with one Toshiro Mifune. That is such a key advance here because, again, we mentioned it before, but kind of the acting of some of these earlier films was so spotty. But Mifune, even at this very first moment, brings such charisma to his role that no matter what other shortcomings you have, we're following somebody who is immensely watchable. 
Right. This is the earliest film that I know about where I've seen Mifune. And even at his youngest age, he doesn't even just so much have a great acting ability so much as this vast, all-encompassing cinematic presence. You can't keep your eyes off the guy. And he seems to have a way of moving and looking at people and grimacing and reacting that just captivates, pours right off from the movie screen. And he's working, as you said, with Takashi Shimura, who actually had small roles in a lot of the earlier films. But at this point, along with him, Fume is going to come into his own as a real presence and lead. Now, he has the less showier role here in Drunken Angel, even though he's he's playing uh, the a drunk and and does has some alcoholic bits. He still is kind of dwarfed by Mfume's uh, presence. <laughs> in, se- in some parts of the later area of the story, he seems to uh, disappear entirely. Mm-hmm. So, so the story doesn't quite flow consistently all the way through. There's a character, for example, near the end, who it turns out was really pining for one of our two main leads, and that was nowhere, established nowhere near earlier in the movie. To just take one, to just take one example. However, what's really interesting about Shimura is the characterization is a pretty varied and robust one. Like he has kind of a cynical approach because he's a small town doctor mm-hmm. who doesn't manage to get a lot of money from his clients. And he has a wonderful attitude towards the gangsters. For one thing, he doesn't fear them or appear to be intimidated by them. Also, he really, really likes to drink. Even when he's like being insulted by one and being escorted to the door, he thinks, well, maybe I can go fill and get one more shot in. (laughs) (laughs) And he makes it a little bit of a very interesting personal kind of mission when he discovers in the midst of, of treating Mifune's character that he might be suffering from tuberculosis. And he has a great line in there where he says, oh, I don't care about you, but it's my mission to stop the bad cells in your body. (laughs) Right. These two end up in, uh, at one moment, uh, he's being a healer, uh, fixing, uh, providing medical care. And and the next scene, they're throwing things at each other because they're both such uh, either hot-tempered and or drunk characters. (laughs) Yes, that's right. You mentioned earlier the uh, the cesspool, which we see often in this film, this giant lake of sludge and dirty water. It's part that, of where the opening credits actually play over it. Right, yeah. You see the, the, the bubbling of it. And the town surrounds it, and characters are becoming ill. And I guess that leads to my big problem with this film, which is that it hits home its theme so hard and so repeatedly that it becomes a little preachy. Obviously, the filth of the cesspool is meant to represent the degradation of the town itself, which now, instead of being during the war, is a critique of life under the American occupation. 
Oh, so that's what that was supposed to be, huh? <laughs> oh, oh my. Uh, you know, I guess I should have seen that from like the fifth time that a gangster is then uh, superimposed with images of the pool bubbling over. Uh, or the seventh time that happens. It, it or the eleventh. Ha- it happens a lot. And what it's so strange because... Kurosawa is going to become the ultimate show-don't-tell director, yet here it's all tell-don't-show. <laughs> the, the, the dialogue is giving you the lessons of the film. It's these, these folks are bad and, the, and, and, and these folks are good. And, and, and instead of demonstrating through action why that's the case, we're just going to kind of describe that. Yeah, you get the sense that the tuberculosis illness of Mifuni's character is suffering from might be a consequence of his hedonistic, amoral lifestyle. Because the doctor has a sentence saying, this is because of your rotten, <laughs> dirty lifestyle. <laughs> right. Yeah, he, it's explained, over-explained, re-explained, and then in case you didn't get it, it cuts to a shot of this dirty pool. <laughs> However, you can tell just by the fact that he keeps cutting back to it that he's able to deliver that message. You feel that if it was done by committee or by censor board, there would have been a little less cut to the pool, a little more attempts to entertain people for one thing. Right. Well, you you could see he's growing as a filmmaker because a lot of the rough edges of the earlier wartime films are smoothed out here visually. And the movie looks great, as every uh, Kurosawa film will from from this point on. And, and, and it's interesting how... He didn't start out as the Akira Kurosawa we know. He grew into this director. And this was, I think, the big transitional film to get him to where he'd eventually become. And you also see a growing visual sense in the margins among his very, very dedicated message. Kurosawa is a such a fertile creative mind that even when he's trying to hammer and hammer home how this disease this pool is he does so a couple of interesting flourishes by both showing how very at certain points characters are reflected in the pool Mm -hmm. or how the wind causes ripples to form much like how when um a yakuza pecking order has been upended for example but I think the further you get into the margins, the, there's some fun details to bring in that come in Drunken Angel. For example, as Mifune's gangster character uh, suffers from uh, a fever, both as a result of the disease and some of the consequences of his actions, he gets a dream sequence where he's on the beach and in slow motion he gets a coffin, which he opens to reveal himself, <laughs> which I'm sorry, that blew me away because the last thing I was thinking when I was going to see an Akira Kurosawa movie was part of a Bergman movie. <laughs> <laughs> when one of his Yakuza cohorts returns from a prison sentence and Mifuni wants to show him a good time, you get this really fun, garish, bizarre jazz show where people are doing weird dances and everything's just a little too wild, almost like it's like it's an outtake from a Roger Rabbit. (laughs) You almost get a sense that, hey, wait a minute. 
is he making she making a straight up parody of mm-hmm. the American um, noir traditions where you would stick in a musical number like out of out of nowhere? Like maybe it's this dirty take on Gilda or something, which is really <laughs> fascinating. But one of my and my one of my ultimate favorite little details is a confrontation that the uh, Yakuza has with a uh, rival near the end of the film. It's just done from the vantage point of a gigantically long hallway. And then finally off in the distance, you see Mifune bust out. And then the camera pulls a 180 that you see him as he's skittering back. He's skittering back down this hallway. But you don't see the person who he's fighting. So the uh, intent is almost like the film itself is like uh, uh, coming mm-hmm. after him. And then when you finally see who, uh, who is attacking, they attack in an area of the hallway that's a little less developed. And so there's some construction and paint, uh, uh, paint cans. And so there's this spillage of blood and paint and sweat that, just becomes this really weird, captivating mess. Right. It, it's a visceral film because yes. Vis- even yes. yeah, even with the uh, pacing and kind of the storytelling not in top form, the you are there kind of way that Kurosawa brings us into an environment is now ready and fully formed. Certainly true. And and Mifune's characterization just brings out on the environment Mm -hmm. fully formed as well as he succumbs more and more to this ailment he becomes so much more haggard and his cheeks are so sunken well unfortunately i think he does a better job than his makeup man because (laughs) some some of the uh the sickly makeup on on him i thought was a little much but yeah but he's so (laughs) effective at bringing off like just the level of desolation and both medical and spiritual terms Mm -hmm. that frankly you look at him and you think he could successfully play a ghost right now. <laughs> right. Like if, if it was some way to come back. <laughs> but his dedication to that can, cannot be denied, even in this. And, and I think, the, in a way, the paint battle comes across to what Drunken Angel kind of is, a visceral, elemental bit of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Now, now I, I I have to imagine that some some of you listening are thinking, wait a minute, do these guys like Kurosawa or not? <laughs> but here's the thing. Now we're moving on. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, my complaints are over. Once we get on to our next film, I think we have our genius. We have our master director. Okay, so you're a big fan of his next film, Stray Dog, which was released in 
post-war Tokyo's criminal underworld. This is a great-looking film. It feels a lot like an American noir of the period, although it has different kind of themes. But it takes place on these hot days. We're going to keep bringing weather up. And, and in this one, it's the heat. Everyone is sweaty. Everyone is patting themselves down. So as we're dealing with Infume's guilt at having lost his gun and what his gun is going to be used for and his desperation in getting it back, you see the oppressive heat put pressure on these characters even more. Decades before, do the right thing. Yep. <laughs> Stray Dog is a wonderful template to just show how the literal atmosphere just goes and warps people and causes um, disputes and accidents and errors in judgment that can lead to drastic consequences. Just like a certain uh, fetid pool from a certain earlier Kurosawa movie, the environment plays a part in people's behavior or is meant to metaphorically show for people's behavior, but it's done a lot more subtly here just through making certain environments more, a little more claustrophobic than is comfortable to the constant presence of fans moving in this corner of the frame mm -hmm. or that corner of the frame. Right. And this is a film that's almost all location shoot. So what we, we get is a, a very detailed look at American-occupied Japan. Just about the only thing we don't see are Americans, but we see signs of the occupation everywhere. We see signs of the post-war era everywhere as buildings are dilapidated, walls that have experienced explosions. And so we capture very vividly a period of history while at the same time being a massively entertaining police drama. Yeah, the plot here is vastly improved on its earlier film, working at a level of a fine example of a police procedural. As the police pick up on uh, details and witness testimony to try and corner where the pickpocket had taken the gun, leading to an arms dealer uh, leading to the person who currently has the gun who then uses it to start a crime spree which as you can imagine leads to no end of guilt running through Mifune's character over having having lost it and it's interesting how the criminal is portrayed because he's not seen until the very end but he's talked about quite a bit and what we find is that he wasn't planning on using the gun, but because he felt cornered by this police chase, he th then we hear about the violence he perpetrates, and that brings the Mfume character's guilt to an even higher level. Mm-hmm. And there's a great many characters that, as they go and explore, who have found themselves just compromised or have had to make often painful adjustments to the new post-war... Uh, situation in Japan. The veteran cop portrayed by uh, Shimura provides a generational perspective difference than Mifune's rookie, just to the extent that this movie may have even started the buddy cop archetype. <laughs> 
Right. It's, it feels so familiar to us because we, we've seen it so many times. But uh, this would have been a very fresh kind of relationship back in 1949. Yeah, I can't think of a one that where they that had the guy who's like too old for his shit. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not as simplest it's not as simplistic as all that. Like there's a great level of sympathy for the for the rookie cop who lost a gun that is was I found really unexpected in it. Right, Infume is going to become so known for his ultra aggressive characters that this one is, is really a breath of fresh air as somebody who's vulnerable and internal. While he certainly has his scenes where he's intense because he's trying to get that gun back, you see more vulnerability in Infume than you usually do. Yeah, that's, that's so true. As the gun and the number of bullets <laughs> that are in it are just get involved in more and more dangerous criminal enterprises. He just feels it more and more. And we as an audience feel more and more the awful weight of guilt and responsibility as for what happened with this lost weapon. And everyone else on the police force is really trying to assuage this, uh, especially uh, Shimura's character who has more experience and, and more perspective on it. But speaking of Shimura, he's also part of what I think is, is the most suspenseful sequence in the film that's worthy of Hitchcock, in which they have pretty much found where the criminal is, and uh, Shimura's character is in a phone booth inside a hotel trying to uh, call back with the information. And then all we see are the legs of the killer yep. now witnessing Shimura yes. on the phone, which we see, but he does not. Yeah, you're so right. This is the first example that I can see uh, in, the, in Kurosawa's filmography, which is a straight-out masterpiece sequence of filmmaking something that just rivals what the Ma alfred hitchcock the master of suspense uh can do if you just watch that scene like every detail leaves you on edge and it's, it's a perfect cliffhanger moment of a scene's conclusion mm -hmm. and i also want to say that another moment part where uh, where stray dog just triumphs is that it takes a step above those elements that we were describing in his earlier films, but polishes it and presents it at the right time and at the and in the right way to make it an enhancement uh, and not a detriment. Like as we were talking about the social commentary and the criticisms of how people are supposed to behave and adjust in post-war Japan, um, especially as it results with uh, commerce and capitalism and so on. Um, have been have been touched on, but unlike the previous movie where it just kept hammering the theme home, this is just builds upon all the different people the cops visit and accumulates in this really wonderful moment where a the girlfriend of the per, uh, person who now has the gun who won't admit who won't admit uh, where he is because he has bought her this dress that she would never have been able to afford mm -hmm. in her current job. And and it leads to this great moment where she's puts on the dress. Mifuni's character in this attempt to guilt her 
and prod her to reveal it, tells her, why don't you just put down that dress? You haven't worn it yet. And she has her wearing, and she's spinning. She's spinning in this onrush of frustrated emotions and divided loyalties, and she's whirling around it like a dervish. But the movie earns that point because you've built up the, the, the desperation up to that point. And in a similar way to like how the nature has manifested from his early movie and in Drunken Angel, Mifuni finally finds the person with the gun and pursues him. And the pursuit leads to this dirty, muddy, swampy field. And then the movie, to me, just transcends to just be making not just statements about cops and police procedure, and even society, but just about these people in pursuit and how it just relates to the natural world. It's, it's kind of a way of, of jumping across that like reminds me of the glowing briefcase in Kiss Me Deadly, hmm. or maybe even the swampy destination of the, of the doomed criminal lovers in Gun Crazy. As they're fighting in this swamp, they're surrounded by flowers, and the camera lingers on these the lingers on the flowers after their battle has passed through to just show like just how nature is this bedrock for them, and it, it leads to them both being like bloody, but also covered in water and grime, and finishes in this wonderful composition where one person who's been shot is lying on the left side, and he's exhausted. The other person has been handcuffed, and he's been beaten in every possible way, and he's exhausted, and they're both lying on their backs with a a visual post perfectly blocking them in the distance, and in the distance, you hear some kids singing along as they walk off. And at that moment, the movie just elevates itself to give a hint of maybe even some Terrence Malkin-like poetic grace behind all the police procedural stuff that went before. It was a really amazing experience for me to see a film be one thing and then become so much more all-encompassing in its scope that I felt that happened in the last 10 minutes. Right. Yeah, it's a wonderful moment in a movie full of them. I love how this kind of contrasts with where we're going to be heading because this one is so connected to genre, so connected to what Kurosawa took in from American filmmaking. It's going to be interesting to see him transition from this very powerful genre piece to inventing his own genre. Yeah, and you're talking about genre. Well, Kurosawa manages to redefine a whole new way of interpreting the way like we watch films in his next movie, which was his breakthrough on the world stage, Rashomon in 1950. This movie is about a deadly encounter uh, between a bandit, a woman, and her husband, 
as they're moving through the woods. But since the story of what happened is told by four different characters, each from their own point of view, we're left to wonder which viewpoint is the true one. This is one of the most important films, not just for Kurosawa, but for all of Japanese cinema, because, you know, we we talked earlier kind of about this rich history from Japan, but you know who had no idea about any of that was the rest of the world. Mm. But that changed because Rashomon won the big prizes at the 1951 Venice Film Festival. That gave attention, that let the West, that let the international film community know that not just Kurosawa, but Japan had so much to offer. And it was at that point that, from the point of view of us in the United States and and the West, that world cinema in the 50s truly became world cinema. (laughs) Yeah, the film is just this unique combination, which I think would have brought any cinematic evaluation from around the world would have snapped to attention. Because first, the technique that Kurosawa had been refining throughout his career and brought into in some masterful sequences how we described with Stray Dog. But here, his directorial technique his intent, his ability to use film to express a point of view is amazing all the way through. It is astonishing to see how from all these different perspectives are all filmed in a different way to make you feel and think about the situation in a different way. Because this story, this really tragic story of a rape and a murder is told from four points of view. We're told the story from the point of view uh, of the bandit, of the wife who's attacked, even through a, a spiritual medium of the dead samurai himself, and finally from an onlooker at the scene, a woodcutter. So we see all these different points of view And if this sounds familiar, it's because ever since then, this has become a trope that has been repeated in film upon film, television shows, pop culture. It actually became known as the the Rashomon effect. And it is used so often. It was even used in uh, the little uh, indie film of this year's holiday season, uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi. (laughs) Very few films can just make us more aware on the the lack of reliability on the film that we're watching more than Rashomon was so successfully able to do. I mean, it, yeah, it is a a landmark of filmmaking for presenting that perspective by itself. Just a successful way of how it's someone has one viewpoint about how things work out and you see how a second person's viewpoint uh, and you see how their interpretation of how things work out. If Rashomon only did that, then its mark upon movie history should have been assured because it does those perspectives so well. When the bandit who fancies himself as his grand fighter is relating his side of the story, the presentation of his 
conflict is so majestic. He's shown to be this big, burly guy, and the wife is uh, clearly attracted to him, and his battle with the samurai has this majestic quality to it. And the wife's perspective is shown from a position of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability on just the level of her performance, on where the ca- on how the camera is lower, about how things are put off, how things are put off center, and how her suffering has been has been enhanced. And there is no glory. None of the braggadocio that in the earlier version manifests itself in the second version. Right. And then you get a appropriately perverse version in the tale of the dead samurai who had ended up being bound and forced to watch as his wife was assaulted by the bandit. And so his version is tinged with this sense of his noble obligation has been tarnished. Like I just said, if all this did was show different perspectives, then it's just magnificent. But it also shows that each one of these perspectives, each one flatters the feelings of the person saying it. Kurosawa is driving these points you mentioned home through some really ingenious filming devices and a framing device story that ties all these different versions together. This framing device features the uh, the woodcutter who was the witness, as well as a priest, and they are joined by this more cynical character of a commoner. They're at the Rashomon Gate, where the, the film has its title, and it is raining. Now, to say it is raining is somewhat of an understatement. This might be the most impressive film rain I have ever seen. It's fake rain. It's done with with fire hoses. And the rain was dyed with black ink to make it uh, (laughs) even more visually intense. So we're seeing these four points of view being retold in this framing device and what Kurosawa does to visually let us know where we are at all times is switch from this amazing downpour to the flashback which is a very bright, sunny day in the forest. So we have these cuts from the downpour to the sun, and Kurosawa actually, even possibly for the first time here, purposefully shoots the camera right at the sun to get these glare effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a cinematography masterclass in how you use, like, natural light and shadow to define stuff. You're so right that how like the rain is just a great contrast to put us in the back in the framing device and back into the flashback structure. But it's interesting that when the the you hear the witnesses, the witnesses are presented in a completely sunny environment that is completely stark. Mm-hmm. There's just a bare wall and the people who have already testified are just off to the side, so they're actually also listening in on what's going on, and the judge is never seen. So the characters are facing the camera to give us their testimony. We are the judge. That's right. Mm-hmm. We And we have a 
tough mission ahead of ourselves, as we'll we'll find out. Um, but when they do the flashback, it's not just that the lens flare comes in on the sun, but because this is in a grove in the woods, so much comes out of um, the light playing through the trees, through the leaves, how different people are finding themselves in shadow and in light and these different patterns of it. And it works on this super, super cool, subtle level. And the way how film can move people on like the subtle level. Film's just light and shadow playing on a screen after all, right? So think about like how porous the rain, how much needed to have an effect of be the rain, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and the, the literally to not just make it black, that's an awesome detail. But I would I noticed when I saw it last time is that the sound design really enhances the sound of the rain hitting the different surfaces of the of the of the muddy area around the Rashomon gate and the wood and the dilapidated wood of the gate itself. Mm-hmm. And you're always hearing it, you're always seeing it. And you're always trying to focus at people through it. So the effect is you cinematically feel it. I look at that rain and I think of it as nature's static. Hmm. (laughs) The way of putting in the kind of noise that keeps us from finding the truth of what's going on. And in the same way, the different plays of light and shadow on the different flashbacks are the way about how different things get shaded as according to how the different characters want to hide or illuminate things. And the idea of the witness area is completely bright, and the, you, know, you don't see where the light source is, I don't think. You don't see a shadow because it's meant to be an attempt at a full straight interrogation. Right. So three different settings, all and, and the, li- the way the light is moved into scattered, the actual patterns of dots or slits of rain or solid light is, actually has a meaning. In this film. Right. <laughs> and all this meaning is conveyed visually. So we're going to talk more about the themes, but if you have not seen Rashomon yet, you might want to hold off on this next part because I think, at least for me, there was, I certainly had a different experience watching it the first time than I did with repeated viewings Mm -hmm. as far as uh, expectations on getting to the truth of the matter. (laughs) Nice. I want to say for my personal experience with Rashomon, it's ironic he uses the Rashomon gate because this was one of my quote-unquote gateway films. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's the kind of movie where I got an increased level of realization as to what movies were about and what movies could do and how movies can change your perspective and influence you. Each particular part of the stories being related in Flashback and Rashomon, I found so fascinating that I would just keep drawing into these different perspectives. And at different times, I would say, well, which, which perspective is the more right one? Which one is closer to what actually happened? And the more I saw the movie the more I would just got frustrated to go and say, I can't take these four stories and make them fit into a way where I know what actually is going on. And then it just hit me as a bolt of lightning with stuff that's obvious now in our poster Ashimon world. That, of course, it's the genius on Kurosawa to make that point that you won't know. You can't know. Because everybody relating to it is either a person or 
the ghost of one, which ectoplasmically speaking, I don't know how the ethics they <laughs> are of lying, <laughs> but it's just from some person's perspective. So the truth can't be knowable by human beings, which is, was amazing uh, realization to make in movie terms. Right, and I think that's why we, it's good to see the film once to, I think, have the natural inclination to try to solve this. I think that's where most viewers will try to go on a first viewing. But the theme of it is we can't know. Everybody comes from a position of self-interest. Everybody is an unreliable narrator. This is something that is very familiar in literature, but is brand new in film with Rashomon. This idea that we don't get these clean answers. We will never know which of these four stories is the truth or if any of them are. And this is disturbing to us, but it's also disturbing to the characters in the framing story, particularly the priest who we assume puts a lot of his faith in, in the goodness of his fellow man. But what is the message? The message that we're getting and struggling with is, you know, what if there is no goodness in our fellow man? Or even the concept of the priesthood or philosophy is that the search for truth. What, how do you face the idea that the truth will be unknowable from on a fundamental way mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't that n even negate philosophy and religion? Ah, oh, in fact, how can people reach agreement if their perspectives are fundamentally unknowable from one person to another? It's a very dangerous particular kind of insight that's brought that's brought around and explored in this film which is part of the reason why i think kurosawa chickens out at the very end but i do want to say at least for far from the four perspectives um i'm curious as to if you think one of them is something that you think is more accurate as to how <laughs> things are going on i'll say for me i actually do think that the the fourth recollection which is done by the woodcutter is the most accurate or maybe Kurosawa's attempt to show the most accurate because as he relates to it, the conflict is a lot more slapdash, a lot more random things happen. It's the fight itself is clumsy and looks a little silly at times, despite having a horrific conclusion. Partly the reason is I think it's more of what Kurosawa thinks things are like is because in the original story, in a grove, the recollections stop at the ghost of the samurai. And Kurosawa added the framing device, which also features the woodcutter. But maybe partly is that's maybe I mean by perspective about how I think people just don't have as much order and as much dedication to philosophy or values <laughs> as they think that they do. Well, uh, yeah, that actually was also my perspective on first watching, because okay. <laughs> not only for the reasons you mentioned, but because he has the least self-interest in the story. All the other storytellers are direct participants and have varying levels of guilt or innocence, whereas 
the woodcutter is a witness. But if, if you watch it a few times, I find Kurosawa is fighting against this instinct. And now I'm of the point of view that the woodcutter is just as fallible, just as unreliable as anyone else. He has his own perspective. He has his own motivations in wanting to tell this story. And we can certainly do a, a parlor game of kind of guessing which one of these stories has more veracity. Yeah. But but it ends up, I think, being much more fascinating yeah. the way I think the film is presenting it, which is that we cannot know. Yeah, I do think the film does still have a lot of entertainment out of looking at those scenes and watching them again and wondering how much of the perspective we're looking at is something of the character's attempt to realistically say what's going on and how much of it is their ego or their vanity or their suffering just trying to be validated in the things that they say. Mm -hmm. I think there's enough interesting details in each one of the four stories for people to enjoy, even if it turns out to ultimately be un unknowable. And I think it was a really great choice to frame it with the Rashomon Gate for multiple reasons, one of which is to have the rain and the attempted refuge be a way of giving us space to think about each particular flashback thing that we just see. It's important for us to have those moments to reflect right. as, over the course of the film. And also the fact that his two companions the, of the woodcutter at the moment is a priest, a person who at least makes the claim to have, quote unquote, the answers, the right way to go, the right way to believe. Or at least the way they start out, he feels that's that right. way. That's right. Or he starts off, that's exactly yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And then a commoner, which I was a little confused at first because isn't when cutting thought as a commoner type of activity, but I think what he's meant to be is like the basest attitudes of human nature. I think there's not a coincidence that whereas you see the priest and the woodcutter first at the gate, that the commoner emerges from the murk of the rain environment. He's splashing through the puddles to get there. He's ripping up parts of the gate. And when he does a dastardly deed at the end, he just walks off into the rain, which doesn't make logical sense, because why would you go out of the rain and then just wander back in, mm -hmm. except that he's made his message? It's important that he is there because he provides the backstop for what you describe in the unreliability of the woodcutter story. Even if you're like me, are inclined to think, oh, no, well, the woodcutter, the stuff about how humans are fallible and random and they are doing things to flatter themselves, even if you like his perspective, the commoner points out that, hey, wasn't there a valuable bit of jewelry that doesn't show up in your story? Right. He's got a much earthier attitude, a much more cynical attitude. That doesn't get refuted uh, right. <laughs> by, what the, by what those characters have to say. They, both the woodcutter and the priest have no answer to what the commoner describes in his interpretation of the story. Right. And I can see how the ultimate message that Rashomon delivers so effectively can be thought of as so bleak and is delivered so forcefully and with such 
authority and clarity and precision that could really be a bummer <laughs> just really like <laughs> ru- really for harsher perspective and i think kurosawa ultimately just couldn't follow through on those convictions because there's a moment at the end where he pulls back in a particularly lame way by finding a baby the commoner is uh, taking some clothes from a baby, but then the woodcutter defends the baby and then promises to take care of the baby. And the movie ends with him walking off in the distance with said baby as the um, uh, priest uh, looks on in approval. And the, the and the rain has stopped. And the rain has stopped, yes. So, yeah, I, I don't mind that there was an attempt to walk back from kind of the nihilism that the film has led us to. But yeah, the baby element, I'd agree, was handled a little abruptly. Truth be told, I think the film is so strong and the structure is so strong that this one element that doesn't quite work really doesn't bother me that much. But yeah, I I think it could have been handled a little better. When I think about it, it reminds me of the kind of last-minute feel-good hijinks that plagued the end of Orson Welles's The Magnificent Ambersons. And it left me thinking, like, why did I, why do I still like an Ar- Magnificent Ambersons in spite of that ending and are more easily dismissive of that last scene, whereas this one just sticks in my craw for Rashomon? And I, partly is, is that the ending of Ambersons is not Wells. But I think also more importantly is that it clearly looks that it wasn't directed by Wells. It's clear that whatever touches that Wells put so well in the earlier part of Ambersons is just simply not there. Meanwhile, in Rashomon, the way the baby is shown and the acting and all those other cinematic elements are just as great as they were for the rest of Rashomon. But whereas every other detail of Rashomon was just this precision-guided missile on this message, and the authority that which Kurosawa provides this message is so evident. Just as how that's clear, so his abdication of that message as a sop (laughs) is all the more clear. And it's interesting because it follows along with some autobiographical details of Kurosawa, which are his struggles with depression. And I think we're going to see as we continue in this discussion, and and then even when we get into part two, that Kurosawa's outlook becomes far more bleaker as time goes on, far more pessimistic. And so I think we're at a place here where he's looking for that to provide that relief so as not to head directly into the abyss. But within a couple films, the abyss is where we're going. Half of my life I've been Like slow light. 
and he faces and takes a look into the abyss in his next film, Ikiru, in 1952, which returns him to the world of contemporary drama and stars Takashi Shimura as Watanabe, a middle-aged bureaucrat who finds out that he is dying of stomach cancer, which leads him to question what he has done with his life and whether he's ever truly lived at all. This is, for me, I think it's Kurosawa's finest achievement, greatest example of cinema expression, and one of the 30 greatest films that have ever been made. Yeah, it. I'm so close to agreeing with you. If it were not for the next two films we're going to discuss after this <laughs> okay. one, and one we're going to discuss in part two. However, I will agree with the spirit of what you said. I, I think that Akira Kurosawa has made four drop-dead masterpieces, and that this is one. And the reason for this particular one that really blows me away is how it is in no way the movie you would expect, given the premise. Yes. Akiru means to live. And we start out with an x-ray of Wantabe's stomach, which is riddled with uh, stomach cancer, uh, which will kill him in, in less than a year. So we're prepared now to think we're going to be dealing with this tragic film, this this melodramatic look at death that's uh, filled with suffering, somewhat like the source material, Tolstoy's uh, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. But instead, Kurosawa turns this story of dying into something that is amazingly life-affirming as in his last months, Wantabe finds out more about life than he ever knew. It can't be stressed enough how amazingly well this film is anchored by the epic performance by Takashi Shimura as Wantanabe. He is required to go through so many things as an actor, as a character in this story, and he delivers on all fronts. From looking at like us as a boring bureaucrat to the ultimate depths of despair to the fleeting moments of joy to the wonders of trying to rediscover the world or discover things in the world when he tries differing from his bureaucratic life to a sense of purpose that he finds along the way, he is never less than utterly convincing from moments of great feeling where we totally see where he's coming from to moments of utter despair, which we hope we never feel, but feel so truthful as we see the expression on his face. Yeah, we, re- we really need to honor this, this actor, uh, particularly for this role, 
But it's also really interesting to kind of see the range he has, because we're about to see in, in his next movie him playing the strong, vital, energetic character. But here he's hunched over. One of the other characters in the movie nicknames him the mummy because he walks around like somebody already dead. Yes. He, you know, his wife had died many years ago. He doesn't have a great relationship with his son. So just as... Rashomon had this incredibly unique structure. Akiru also has a structure unlike any other film I've ever seen. It's it, it's told in two parts, and even even the parts get their own unique chapters, really. So we deal in the first part with various stages of grief, and so we see a stage of denial where he, for the first time in his life, because again, he's this very traditional, conservative, older Japanese man, goes to a bar and meets up with this more uh, hipster character, and they end up going for a a night on the town of, of some debauchery, which is truly not this guy's style but it is right. one of the it is one of the first reactions to this idea that have i really lived and is this living getting drunk partying going to what is clearly his first strip club mm-hmm. um yep losing <laughs> his hat losing his hat the hat becomes a wonderful visual symbol here cuz his old hat is taken from him his traditional old man hat yeah. and he he buys this more uh dapper more, more, exactly, exactly exactly the shiny uh hipster hat <laughs> <laughs> And we see this hat come back again and again in the film uh, as a motif. Yeah, and also wonderful details as he gets his night of debauchery, how he's possessive of his new hat and -hmm. and he's scared that someone will take it away from him. And you see his growth as as a... as a person with these new experiences, just in how hat behavior, just uh, examination right. through hat behavior, and, we, and, we, and then we also see how this is not fulfilling for him, and so in the next stage, he meets up with one of his coworkers, this young woman who is uh, giddy and idealistic about life, and has just quit her job at the uh, at the government office that they both worked at. And this is very interesting because the people around him think that it's some kind of affair, which which it's not. But it does bring up this idea of him wanting to be around youth and the allure of this young woman who is so vital and full of life. And he wants to live through that vicariously, which he finds he really cannot do either going back to the acting he he has this uncanny ability to disturb people around him oh yeah through by really by making this face <laughs> that that is kind of yeah. this panicked pitiful face mm-hmm. that completely unnerves the people around him including this young woman who realizes kind of what's going on that you know, even though they're calling him a mummy he's being a little bit of a vampire in this section <laughs> nice. and trying to yeah. you know trying to rationalize his demise by being around such uh, vitality mm-hmm. 
I mean, so much of those monsters that we've seen in horror movies and horror in general are come from a place that, like, I like it's called, I think, the abject, which is these feelings that we don't want to rationally acknowledge. We put in on monsters, like how you put zombies are like people who've lost their um, ability to to think and reason, for example. And so, in other words, our fears are put on here. And this is part of the brilliance of, of Shimura's performance because he is a person you want to relate to and the monster we don't want to face at the same time. And this leads to a transition, which I think is one of the most brilliant moments of the film, which is in the last meeting with his young co-worker, Wantabe, has made a conclusion, has realized that there is something he can do to put meaning in these last weeks of his life. And the way this is portrayed is they're at a club where the background characters who we don't meet are celebrating a birthday for a woman who's about to enter the frame. But what we see is the group singing happy birthday as Wantabe exits the room. So it looks like they're singing to him. And in essence, they are because what's about to happen is kind of a birthday. It's yeah. it's because as the movie keeps saying, was he alive to begin with? Right. Well he's about to become right. alive. You might you would almost say it was a rebirth, except that he may have never been effectively born as a person in the first place. There was no rosebud for him. Mm -hmm. Um so yes, it is his birth. He's he's entered a new phase on there. And that's a that's a great point. And if the movie was just about, just literally ended with him having that sense of purpose, if it just ends on that point, honestly, I still think it's one of the greatest movies ever made because his characterization and how his character has this effect on people and his travels through the world trying to find this purpose and this meaning is just this magnificent look at the abyss and an, trying to find an answer. It's so brilliant visually in a way in how his complete perfectionist attitude of having every part of the movie work for your uh, ideas that he was evident in Rashomon is still totally evident here. And the way that you have this level of sympathy for Wantanabe and you want to see him succeed and but yet you have this corner of yourself that you're scared of what you might find out if you follow him is is so evident through his journey and the two poles of the artist who takes him on the level of debauchery and the uh, young lady who takes him on this trip through uh, useful exuberance is so effectively visually contrasted. Um, the artist's journey is this half noir kind of nightmare where it's it's uh, everything's a little too crowded for one thing, and there's always these 
crazy corners and there's these dance floors chock full of people and you get a journey through the um a world of of decadence and attempted pleasures in a similar way though stray dog did but it's all compressed mm-hmm. in like 10 15 minutes meanwhile the girl's situation is not done in a noir it's done bright She's always wearing bright colors. It's almost always sunny or very well lit. And that moment of the happy birthday sequence is incredibly brightly lit, for example. Mm -hmm. It even works on an animal level as a black dog in the bar where the artist meets Wantanabe leads them on the journey. And what gets the um, Wantanabe to think of a sense of purpose is when the girl goes, I just do these little things. And she makes, she pulls out a toy rabbit. Yes. And the rabbit <laughs> skips across. And it's this really dark mangy dog on the one side and a really fuzzy wuzzy bright mechanical rabbit on the other that provides these two end points for the, for the kind of range for where Wantanabe can find his answers. And when it has him return to the office and the first thing p- does his co-workers see is his bright chapeau gigolo hat and he says oh i need to go to this and check out a park survey and he and for the first time in the movie you see this wonderful sense of purpose and and optimism and dedication as he walks out the door and in an echo of stray dog the the door is bouncing back and forth and the reflection just comes in and he almost disappears out in the reflection. But but even, even up to then, every moment where he just blossoms in the most faintest of ways as a human being is tremendous. The first time he laughs, the first time he reacts about hearing about a mummy is just great. And the first time he can finally be honest with his situation, which he was not able to do with his family, is just wonderful to behold. Again, if the movie just ended with him walking off in a distance, still, stone-cold masterwork of, of film. But then the film turns from being merely a great movie to one of the greatest films of all time by saying, no, that's this one person's story, as compelling as it is. It's not just about him, but it's also about the world, too. And if the first half of the movie asks, what is a man's life about in terms of what the guy thinks? The second half is, what is this guy's life worth? Of course, how all society thinks. And the second half comes very abruptly. Because instead of watching the final stages of his life, we cut directly to the funeral, to uh, a picture of Wantanabe that we'll see over and over again uh, in the funeral. And then through his co-workers and the community's stories about him, as well as through flashbacks, we're going to fill in the rest of this story Because at the beginning of the film, a group of mothers had come into this office complaining basically about 
really what might be somewhat similar to the cesspool of yes. of Drunken Angel, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, where they would like to build a playground for their children. But being a bureaucratic government office, everyone just kind of shuffles it off on other folks and nothing gets done. But Wantanabe now has a sense of purpose and that he realizes that he doesn't have to just be going through the motions. He could do something that makes a difference. And now after the death, we see the most inspiring part of his story occur as we see what looked like meekness, what looked like a small man become large in spirit in his efforts to make this playground a reality. The second half, aside from just elevating the game, elevating the stakes, elevating the scope of the story, is just has so many other layers upon it. It's just so about how it's so remarkable. For one, we're getting a Rashomon-like version mm -hmm. of a guy's life. <laughs> of a single person's life and his specifically his efforts to get the park. This wake is being attended by high government officials, his colleagues at his department, the people at other departments which he had used to petition, um, the mothers you had to, who were interested in his park make a visit, as does a police officer who saw him in his final moments. And every one of them has a different perspective that's mm -hmm. shown just like Rashomon, it's shown in a different way because it's what those people thought were important to them. And the movie is commenting on them as well because this is going to be the final film that Kurosawa makes in the American occupation period and a contemporary film showing that period. And apparently at this point, the uh, censorship of the occupation pretty much uh, faded away as the United States was getting ready to leave Japan. Mm -hmm. And so here he has complete freedom to be critical about society at large, to make political points about how Japan is being run. Yeah. Whereas the first part of the movie shows outwards the scope of all the different parts of uh, Jap all these multiple parts of Japanese society, all the different clubs in one area, the pachinko parlors, playgrounds, and so on. The second part is almost all enclosed inside this very narrow area where the wake is being held, mm -hmm. except on flashbacks. And inside this cauldron, you're also getting a 12 angry men level look at this person's life. Depending upon the people's place in the bureaucracy, their status within the bureaucracy, whether they're members of the family or their colleagues, and their own notions of idealism, dedication to their job, dedication to Wantanabe as a, as a human being. Every one of these different perspectives gets pulled in at, on display and on debate. And it's just an amazing to just see how all these different perspectives just coalesce and where Rashomon had maybe a nihilistic view of it. This transcends it. Right. Transcends it. Mm -hmm. It goes and takes the, the viewpoint of funda oh, while you fundamentally don't know exactly the reasons why he decided to make this park 
and everyone still has their own perspective. But by the end, there is an agreement among all these people as how that the system as it currently stands, how it divides people, how the bureaucracy compartmentalizes and keeps progress from being made and from humanity from being the best it could be and how it limits people, eventually people come to realize that. So it manages to both acknowledge the cynical nature of how, the system, how badly the system is while totally honoring the way how one person's efforts can affect people's understanding of at least the problem. Right. And his visual mastery is astounding to behold in really brings full flower in the second half because as, as each person relates and you see the flashback, the presentation and Wantanami's very appearance is distinct depending upon the person relating what he had seen and of him. Also, there's an inspired touch of how this wake, which when it started were these two rigid lines of people uh, solemnly, formerly praising him as they are uh, stiffly eating their food. Eventually, these lines become more and more ragged as people argue their points and move across to the other side of the room and eventually culminates in this big circular kind of gathering as people just vow, at least at this moment, to honor the spirit through which Wantanamé's efforts got this park built. And it's just a great way of showing how the order of the bureaucracy breaks down in an expression of common humanity. Right. And, and you talk about the visuals of this film, and there is a moment that's very powerful. It's also, it's also probably a moment that's very familiar to anyone who's even heard of this film. It's a flashback from the policeman to basically his last moments. And uh, Wantanabe is in the park that he built as uh, snow is coming down. You see him kind of first through the bars of the jungle gym and then finally swinging on a swing, uh, singing an old song from his childhood. I guess poignant is a word for it, but uh, the, it might not be a good enough word for right. it because it, it's such an immensely moving moment. He is going to die in this park. We don't see him die, which I think is the right decision. We see the the last moments of him recalling his life yeah. on this swing that he built. Yeah. And what can I say? It's just beautiful. It's, it is. It is. You're right. Calling pointed is a total understatement. I don't think I have the thesaurus ready <laughs> to describe the words of just how effective it is. It is important to note that this is a, that the song whose subject is matter is how fleeting life can be yes. is something that he sings earlier at a nightclub. And he sings it in a way that causes all the revelers to stop because at that moment he's singing it in the most mournful, heart-wrenching manner possible. And everyone is just put in face-to-face -face with just a stark reality of the sentiment behind those words. And then when, it, when he does it a second time, while still acknowledging the fleetingness and the transience of life it 
just has such a tinge of triumph and value. I think value might be, is another inadequate way of saying it, mm-hmm. but it shows the value behind those words. And, the, and he's so happy and maybe even more content in that moment. And there's an inspired way of how it has him swinging. He's facing the camera in, in a way he has been so hard to face so much many times earlier in the movie and it fades in from him swinging to his picture and what does that say right it's not it's not that we see his death but we see like in so many of these flashbacks it's a snapshot it's frozen out in time and it just gives us a glimpse of this person and gets us to feel that this deep reservoir of feeling that he get in that that scene what was that about? You know, what was that about? What was his life all about? What is life all about? I mean, that shot is just masterful by itself. It's masterful in the context of the movie. And in a way, when I saw it this time, it actually ties in in a really interesting way to the final image. The final image has uh, one of his colleagues who was most insistent that that his effort should have been acknowledged when it's a future time he's still working in the bureaucracy and he finds himself kind of defeated because the bureaucracy must still go on and in this amazing shot he's descended into a mass of papers which have been mm-hmm. just stuck it's of Terry Gilliam could not wish of a more perfect nightmare depiction of, of bureaucratic inefficiency than the mounds of papers that are strewn around everywhere in this office. Yeah, it's never simple with, with Kurosawa. We're inspired by Watanabe, and there is this positive message, but then it's undercut because it ends with Watanabe because his colleagues are not going to carry on yeah. his example. Yes. But does that make that example any less important? Exactly right. And that's, that's a case where he literally takes the groundbreaking stuff that he did in Rashomon and that kind of message and where Rashomon pulls a little back here. Damn it. Kurosawa just goes full forward on there and he says, I'm going to face it. I'm going to face it not even in the sense of of being melodramatic or being even cynical. Cynical is not an accurate word. It's going to be as truthful a look at this situation of the world, of the people in it, of the institutions that are a part of, and how difficult it is for something good to come up out of this world. And he faces it. And it culminates on the final image, which shows this person who had really felt for Wantanabe's mission is overlooking the park. And he is this noirish silhouette on a diagonal highway overlooking as these kids are playing in the park. And just in a moment that I just noticed this time, as kids are going off to supper, they're, they're running off from the park, and he's slowly walking across. Like Kurosawa has done in so many earlier films, he shows this vast expanse of the sky to show, like, to give this impression of the immensity of nature and what must nature think of the what people are and what the things that we do. And as he walks across, 
and you see the top part of the swing and it's still swinging back and forth. Perfect, Akira Kurosawa. Just fucking perfect. Now, from the depths of this movie, he explores some rousing heights in his next film, The Seven Samurai, in 1954. It's about some uh, peasant farmers who are terrorized by bandits and attempt to fight back by hiring a motley crew of ronin, or masterless samurai, who must gather their forces and train the farmers in preparation for the battle to come. Yeah, to call this one epic would be an understatement. It we are having didn't... trouble finding words to yeah. describe well, these, de- these <laughs> things that... Akira Kurosawa does not do half measures. After all, he isn't inventing the samurai genre, but he is reinventing it. It is his first samurai film what we referred to earlier as the chambara uh mm-hmm. sword fight films other other films have been set period but here he takes on in a very large way the samurai myth the place that the samurai are held in the folklore of japan which probably the closest we can come to is to compare it to the American Western, to the cowboy myth. But in fact, it's something much bigger because where we basically have a century of cowboy myths to uh, derive our Westerns from, Japan has many centuries of samurai stories. And in fact, this one is set in a different place than most uh, traditional samurai stories are. This film takes place in uh, 1586 during a period called the Sengoku period, which is earlier than most other samurai films take place. And and this is a period that's also known as a constant civil war. So true chaos is reigning at, at this point. The government is localized, and even that is falling apart during this period. So you have not the traditional role of the samurai, which is to serve masters, to take on a military, bureaucratic, and other governmental type of roles. But as we see near the beginning of the film, the the samurai are kind of wandering back and forth, looking for ways to make enough money to eat. And yet still the good ones are attempting to continue to live by the, by the Bushido code. Mm. And that's where our farmers come in. 
Oh, well, what is the Bushido code? The Bushido code is the code of the samurai. It pro- probably a good comparison would be uh, if you if you look at chivalry in the uh, knights in shining armor days. Okay, uh, that is an ideal that samurai are are supposed to live up to. Of course, one of the great things about samurai movies are how often they do not (laughs) live up to this code. And so you could very easily have samurai villains and and samurais at various levels of holding on to this philosophy. Okay. And again, the theme of this film is going to be the end of the samurai. But to get to that theme... Kurosawa has created what might be considered the first modern action film. Yeah, I look at this movie and I think this is a equivalent to the action films and adventure films. What Steven Spielberg's movie Raiders of the Lost Ark does to action movie serials. Mm-hmm. It takes those elements and gives it both an epic scope, but kind of perfects it, or at very least hones it to a razor-sharp point of incredible quality. This is a movie that spans, what, over three hours, yet never feels boring and is always compelling, entertaining, fun there's always something interesting happening and you get the full geography of this town and its points of attack and defense all sorts of methods are used to attack and defend this location and the different twists and turns of the story are just completely keep drawing you in by saying well, what's going to happen next right. oh my god what's going to happen mm-hmm. next kurosawa manages to sketch a great cast of characters for these seven samurai who are all distinct and their um, individual nature is just brought about in every single motion or even the way they stand amongst each other when they um, when they meet up. Yes, the advantage of a three and a half hour film is really how deep you can go because you have these amazing actors embodying different elements of samurai or want to be samurais. Uh, and we're, we're back with Takashi uh, Shimura is the leader of the seven samurai. And, and of course <laughs> could not be more vital in comparison to his last role. He is the leader in every sense of the word. And we, we begin the samurai portion of the movie with an unrelated bit of action where he has to pretend to be a monk to rescue this uh, family from some uh, thief who's from, from, from this, been thief, holding him hostage. from this thief. This sequence really just teases what's about to come because you don't actually see the battle. You just see the thief come out in slow motion and fall down. So we're already in awe 
of this samurai. And then as he's choosing the rest of the team, he, he creates this test where, uh, one of the, where, uh, to try to trick other samurai into coming into, uh, yes. into the room where, where they're about to be attacked and the good ones know they're about to be attacked. But it, it, it's so interesting, you know, what they're looking for in this group. Cause they know they need exactly seven in order to protect this town or at least seven one of them is there as kind of a spirit lifter. Another one is there just because he's the best swordsman they've ever seen. And then there's the film's gateway into brilliance, Toshiro Infume's character, Kikuchio, who is not a samurai, but has trained and wants very much to be a samurai has the warrior qualities of a samurai, but none of the discipline. Infume gives a wonderfully comic performance in this role, especially as he tries to train the farmers and his origins are slowly revealed as we find out that he actually was once a farmer and, and a peasant. And there's a wonderful scene where after a, a battle and a, uh, a farmhouse burns down, a mother and a baby escape. The mother dies and, and he takes the baby and basically says, this was me. That gives some real depth to this comic character who, who is really the heart of the film. So that's a case where Kurosawa uses a baby right. Mifune is a force of nature in eight different ways in this film. He's uh, constantly like challenging the other samurai to just try and uh, join in on their uh, a mission. He's challenging out the villagers. He's uh, bellowing in uh, first like um, uh, grandiosity and then rage against the bandits as they attempt to break in on the camp. And he is just acts like as in a wild man in uh, moving in from one side, one part of the defense to the other. And every single thing he does, you're drawn to. Mm-hmm. And even when it's a case where there's battle sequences which have um, dozens of people fighting and horseback in the mud and driving rain, you're still drawn to him, and you're still seeing what he what is he up to. Right. I mean, and and there's a reason we we've been hinting around at this, but the truth is, at least from I, I think the point of view of most. Westerners watching Japanese films, this is Japan's greatest star. This is Japan's John Wayne. This is an actor who embodies everything bigger than life. But the character also serves another important function, which is to fit in the theme of of mobility in class, because Sam, being a samurai in most periods is not something anyone can just do. It's something you need to be born into. It's a hereditary position. But in this particular period of history with such uh, chaos, there was a little bit more blurring in these class structures, which reflected now 
Japan, not only after the war, but after the American occupation, becoming its own nation and building its own structure. So there are some modern sensibilities being brought into the historic sensibilities as well. Yeah, if this movie just went in a very weird direction, you could almost have had him as Mifuni being an action star who falls in a hot tub time machine and (laughs) falls back into samurai times. His presence, the way he behaves, is so counter to anything that the samurai have as ideas of propriety, and yet he gains a level of respect from them and respect from the villagers, especially a gang of kids who follow his exploits. Um, This is visually represented by the uh, samurai's battle flag, which indicates the samurai has six circles and a triangle, and he is the triangle. Right. He is, uh, or more accurately, the square peg in the round (laughs) hole of their their ideas of, of samurai life. And... He and so he's just very much an out of in in so many ways out of place and in between places. Right. You you have another subplot that deals with class mobility, which is the uh, the youngest samurai who finds who he thinks is a young boy just outside the village, but is in fact a woman who is dressed as a boy to avoid what the villagers think of uh, as uh, the danger of the samurai ravaging their daughters and a very sweet relationship develops between these two characters he is the most you know young and naive version of the samurai yeah. and in a bit of a twist on expectation she is the more aggressive one in this relationship but yeah. but uh, again the the idea that he's a samurai and she's a a peasant is something that is an impediment to any chance of, of them living happily ever after. Yeah. And there's a fascinating detail upon which, uh, unlike the other samurai who have different economic situations, some of which might be motivating them to participate in this mission, it becomes clear in a particular scene that he is, awash with money and there is no financial impediment to him that would influence him being a samurai Mm -hmm. so he's looking at things from the rich side of the tracks you could say right how he looks at the leader played by shimura how he looks at the sword master uh, how he looks at the different uh peasants and how he values the life of a samurai is a fascinating detail on what happens over the course of this story. Mm -hmm. The movie also does some interesting subplots on how the peasants approach the samurai themselves, to which, like, Mifune is an effective translator slash guide through those worlds. Mm -hmm. Right, because (laughs) the farmers are initially portrayed as so meek and helpless that they they need these samurais but they're they're also very formidable as a group especially uh, one farmer whose uh, wife has been abducted 
And so at first they shun the samurai because of a mixture of fear and uh, outsiderness. But also then the samurai find out that they do have weapons and their weapons stolen from dead samurai. So there is this constant dynamic in flux between the samurai and the farmers, which will reach the ultimate conclusion of the film. Hmm. See, now that's interesting. That's a part where I think our attitudes diverge a little bit upon the Seventh Center, because while the movie is pointing out that the peasant's attitude towards the samurai is a little more complex than at first thought, the samurai's mission is never called into question. Maybe it's in comparison to some of Kurosawa's other films. And it's unfair because the other films are about other things. Mm -hmm. Because I think as Seven Samurai, as an exciting, compelling adventure, it succeeds and is completely triumphant upon it. It is a great movie if it doesn't do anything else aside from that. However, especially compared to his previous two films and their concerns on perspective, I just feel a little bit of a diminished scope that the perspective that the samurai have on the peasants is never really called into question. There's never a point where the, they go, you know what? The hell with these villagers. Let's just get the hell out of here. I think someone maybe made one sentence about it, and it's quickly refuted. Well, we, we talked about Bushido a, a little while ago, and, and this would be an example of where this code of honor would prevent that kind of attitude. Not in any samurai, but in these particular samurais who we are meant to admire. But I, I would caution against too direct a comparison be between this film and the previous ones because the genres are so different. This film has some fascinating thematics, but the excitement of it the, and the, the way it's shot, the way every frame revolutionizes what an action film could be is an accomplishment, I think, that's on par with anything else Kurosawa has done in his career. And I do want to get a little bit into more of that visceral part, but I, but I also want to skip ahead a little and, and deal with the thematics, because it's also important to note that there is a serious theme going on here, and it may be a theme that is a little more particular to Japan and to Japanese history because when, spoiler alert, <laughs> the samurai win. At the end of the movie, uh, they, they, they suffer losses, but the bandits are driven back, the samurai win. And the last scene is basically of the samurai saying, well, you know, it's really the farmers who won because... They're going to go on. These, they're going to have children. They're going to continue. But at, at this point in history, at this point in the perspective of these samurai, they're an endangered species. And as we know, there are no more 
samurai that they did end they 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 actually ended a couple centuries later but they they did end and so in talking about the class history of japan and the special place the samurai are held in it to make that contrast between the samurai and the farmers is something i find a, a really interesting theme to pursue and has been pursued kind of in an American way, in a a number uh, of Westerns that depict the end of the West, Westerns like uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance or The Wild Bunch, where we see technology and progress make these old forms defunct. Hmm, that's really interesting, especially on the idea on The Wild Bunch. There is a because there's certain points in the story of Seven Samurai where where the bandits have muskets mm-hmm. and they they in fact I almost want to say every single samurai has been gets dispatched by a musket mm-hmm. by new technology. Um, why said samurai don't actually take one of the muskets, <laughs> the two of the muskets that they are effectively steal, and you at least have one of the villagers use it is. Um, that's an interesting question because what part of their nobility or their chivalry says they shouldn't use those weapons, right? In what way is that like is that demeaning in them or makes their mission less noble? Well, the weapon of a samurai is considered very important to the code. A true samurai is supposed to carry both a long sword and kind of a shorter sword uh, dagger in case of they need to end their own lives. So the lack of use of muskets probably has a lot to do with the tr- with, with traditional values. And again, does it make sense on a practical level? No, but that's why yeah. the samurai are an endangered class. Yeah, they're endangered in this particular world of the movie of the seven samurai and like I want to compare it with another samurai-based film called uh, *Harakiri*, which is about committing that ritual, which is where you disembowel yourself because you have disgraced. Mm-hmm. And I think that film traffics a lot better in the case of looking at the code that has you described because they explicitly call out that, hey, this is how samurais are expected to behave, and you guys are not living up to those, to those ideals. And the, that particular film looks in one way or another how the, I, those very ideals fall short, whereas I think Seven Samurai sort of stacks the deck in the, because none of them actually are the classical version of samurai in the sense of following a master from the from the very beginning they are ronin the masterless samurai right um and so that's a little interesting that they that they're not tied into the system that they're a part of in the way harakiri does to me right. it's like kind of like for example if you wanted to have like somebody defend a local neighborhood right but it's seven army generals. Mm-hmm. Like, can they go on their own and <laughs> defend a neighborhood? Sure. But calling it about the seven army generals is, you're like, wait a minute. You're not, 
you're not acknowledging something. You see what I'm saying? And Harakiri mm-hmm. does acknowledges that quite a bit more than Seven Samurai. Right. Well, Harakiri is a wonderful film. In fact, uh, we'll eventually be talking a lot more of it as its director uh, may very well have a future episode on this show. Mm-hmm. But I also find it a film that has so little in common with Seven Samurai that, that I'm not sure... I'm on board with the comparison because of what you said. There is a huge difference between a functioning samurai with a master and his role as a part of the Japanese feudal system and a ronin who, by definition, are more independent, have to fend for themselves, have to kind of follow their own paths in how they behave because they have no master. And I don't think it's an accident that so many samurai films are about Ronin because, frankly, it's more interesting. It showcases something that film is so good at showcases, which is individuality. Yes. Which is something that right. uh, this film does brilliantly as yes. we get to know the personalities and care about each of the seven samurais. So, yes, yes they're not behaving as a traditional samurai in society would, but... I think the film is stronger for that. I don't think the film needs that extra layer of politics because, again, this is about class divisions, class mobility, and what it means to be either a farmer or a samurai or a samurai gone wrong, as it's indicated that some of the bandits are actually samurai themselves. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, it's just, it's just such a different world. And I, I, I think both worlds are fascinating to watch. But because of the skill Kurosawa brings to depicting this world, I actually think Seven Samurai is, is the superior film due in no small part to the immensity of its battle sequences. Uh, Kurosawa uses different filming techniques than he had before. He sets up multiple cameras to capture each moment. He uses telephoto lenses to get so close and intimate into the action. In addition to everything else it is, it's a war film. You see the strategy on paper before you see it played out. You see how many bandits there are versus how many samurai. There's a checklist. There's a checklist, yes. And then you have these initial battles, but the last hour of the film is almost constant battle. And as everyone knows from the mess of current CGI action issues, battle scenes can look confusing. They're hard to render in ways that are truly involving to where you're following each and every element. But Kurosawa does so many things to bring you into these action sequences to make them exciting. The rain, the mud, and 
actually the violence, which is something that, while you know nothing compared to the gore we have today, the violence for 1954 was something audiences would not have seen. And that does two things. I mean, it makes, when characters die, it makes it more visceral. When characters we know and care for die, it makes us more involved. But it also, as I said before, modernizes the genre. It takes us to the point where you could have, you mentioned before, Raiders of the Lost Ark, or you might even instead talk about battle scenes in Saving Private Ryan. All these things stem from Seven Samurai. It was a complete and utter game changer. Yeah, in fact, I, I think you might have actually started the idea of the heist movie mm-hmm. because each one of these samurai get recruited and each one had, like you said before, each one has a particular skill. And I don't actually think that happened in movies before Seven Samurai. That's now an absolutely boilerplate trope of like, hey, if you need a heist, you need like the wheel guy, you need the explosives mm-hmm. expert, uh, you need the um, sharpshooter. And you look around, and part of the fun is getting those guys together. And the getting the band back together it may have literally been forged in the start of this movie. For sure. Yeah, it influenced movies outside the genre. And, of course, everyone knows it led to a very famous remake in uh, 1960, The Magnificent Seven. And there was a remake uh, set in space called Battle Beyond the Stars. Ah. And there's probably a dozen other films that really closely follow this, uh, even films you wouldn't expect, like uh, A Bug's Life has uh, (laughs) elements of Seven Samurai. So we are still feeling the effects of this film today. But if you haven't seen it, it, it's just something to behold. Despite its length, which might make some people pause, it's almost the perfect entryway into world cinema because it's this perfect combination. It both lets you in to Japanese culture through its more traditional historic angles, but it also shows the influence of Western filmmaking that inspired Kurosawa. So it becomes this this wonderful amalgamation of the West and Japan in this amazing explosion of action. After The Seven Samurai, Something Wicked This Way Comes in Kurosawa's next film, Throne of Blood, from 1957. 
This again stars Toshiro Mifune as Samurai General Wajitsu. He and another general come across a mysterious forest spirit who predicts power and kinship for one and royal lineage for the other. With the murder and betrayal that follows, we can only be in an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Which is a wonderful place to be. There's a a line early in Macbeth from the witches that uh, I think is a, is a good segue into this version where they say, uh, fair is foul and foul is fair. Hover through fog and filthy air. With Kurosawa doing Shakespeare, we won't get that kind of language. But when I hear hover through fog and filthy air, that reminds me very much of Kurosawa's visual strategy in Throne of Blood and particularly his use of fog throughout. And he uses it the same way he uses weather throughout his filmography, except here, the visuals that he's been perfecting to such an extent are poetry in and of itself. So the themes, what we can get from Shakespeare's language, we can get from Kurosawa's visuals. The film itself emerges from the fog and the filthy air because the first starts of a pillar which says, here's what remains of the castle. And then it's enshrouded in fog. It emerges from fog and it's enshrouded in fog again. And when the fog lifts, you then have this whole manifestation of the castle I find that super, super cool, and that's because he's giving you a, almost like a fairy tale sense or a sense that just the mere powers of the earth or the smoke itself just cause this story to come into being. Right, and both the, the, the forest and the castle are called uh, Spiderweb Castle, which evokes this kind of trap and a maze and the idea of getting lost, which is the very first thing that happens in Throne of Blood after a major uh, battle victory. Our Macbeth character and our Banquo character find themselves lost in these spider webs that both represent the environment and the character's psychological states. And speaking on spiderwebs, I want to briefly bring in a tangent that when I first saw the movie, I saw it with a very, very poor subtitle track. And spiders were very much on the mind of this track. But as, they are, as the movie starts and they're in this labyrinth area and trapped, find themselves trapped, they keep referring to the quote-unquote, spider bush. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. Every time you think they're talking about a spider web, they keep saying, oh, the <laughs> spider's bush is so thick. I don't know when we're going to get out of this spider's bush. And, just, and, we, and it's because my ire raises a little bit each time as they're going, okay, it's just a spider web. And then ten, after 10 minutes of this, 
one of the characters says, and I, 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 I kid you not, he looks around and he's aghast at how lost they are, and he says, this spider bush is like a spider web. <laughs> I just went, okay, I'm going to like have to see another. I'm going to have to see another subtitle of this. Thank, thank you. Further. Thank you, Criterion, for providing quality translations. Yes, that's um, much better. Yeah. So, so there are two things to me that, that are fascinating and wonderful about Throne of Blood. One is... The Macbeth story, which, as I mentioned in a, a previous podcast, is one of my favorite uh, Shakespeare plays. But the other is how it is not the Macbeth story. The other is where it deviates because Kurosawa is adding, is first of all taking away elements of the story, making it leaner, but he's also adding traditional Japanese elements. So he he filmed this being inspired by a particular type of Japanese theater called No Theater, and that's spelled N-O-H. Mm-hmm. And in No plays, people, actors would wear masks with very distinct facial expressions there'd be a fear mask or a happy mask or a warrior mask each kind of with exaggerated features of those things and so the way he translates no theater elements into throne of blood is with very distinct makeup so you'll notice that Imfume here has makeup that exaggerates his features more than you would have seen in other films. And this is done pretty much for, for all the main characters. And instead of uh, some of the verse from, from Shakespeare, you have some uh, traditional chanting in the no style at the beginning and end of the film. So it's this, this wonderful hybrid of, of Shakespeare and more traditional Japanese theater. Mm, I'm not anywhere familiar with how no theater is, but I do see when I look at Throne of Blood that this is something where he's less concerned with the kind of ultimate depictions of reality or interpretations of reality that he was trying with Rashomon or Ikiru or even or even Stray Dog. I, when I look at Throne of Blood, I'm not seeing Kurosawa try to see people as how people would really behave in a mm-hmm. situation, but I'm seeing a presentation, right. a kind of way that, like, I guess similar to how you're describing on, on in No Theater, like a way of abstracting these concepts and this drama to just show it in this whole total, like, different way of interpreting than just interpreting of a you-are-there kind of realistic scenario. I mean, so much of this is done, for example, just by, like, these very specific movements that Mifune does. And Mifune is great in this movie, and but in this particular one, whereas he is he is all emotions in <laughs> uh, Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. here he really gets this sense of ambition, this sense of con- fury that is contained, right? For, uh, that is 
just gets at the heart of what I see for like the Macbeth character, just the um, the sense that he will go and grab the grab the world by the horns and uh, and fight till his dying breath and possibly beyond that is. Um, just, just plain old evident for for this guy, right? Where Orson Welles's Macbeth downplayed the warrior aspect, here the warrior is the character, and again, that might be a result of, of bringing in Jedi geki aspects of uh, samurai and uh, mm-hmm. other kind of histor- historically yeah. Japanese elements. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like how he's working these guys on the level of icons Mm -hmm. clashing maybe similar to a way how in the good the bad and the ugly the the characters there are not really meant to be human in a way they're meant to be these ultimate examples of the of a type right and and the versions of Macbeth, the versions of Lady Macbeth and Banquo and the other Shakespeare characters here are kind of these super enhanced, polished, iconic versions of these guys. Right, because let's look at our version of Lady Macbeth, who is fascinatingly different than what we're used to in Macbeth Productions, which is a scheming seductress. Here... She's in kind of traditional Japanese makeup with the exaggerated uh, eyebrows and the black teeth, as as was the custom uh, back in the day. And she moves so deliberately. She every single movement of her steps, her getting up, her sitting down, are deliberate. Yep. So when she speaks, and more so than in other Macbeths. It's truly the Lady Macbeth version here who insists on the seeds of ambition for the Mfume character who is basically telling him, if you do not take the throne, you yourself will be killed because you can't trust your best friend. You can't trust anybody but me. And then when they decide to, to go through with the murder, there's this amazing scene where she very slowly walks through a a doorway into complete darkness, disappears completely, then reemerges with the poison. This is kind of what I'm talking about by making Shakespeare language cinematic. Yeah, she slides into and then out of complete darkness darkness like a malevolent wraith Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then there's the different version of the witches uh which also brings in traditional japanese elements because we don't have the witches we don't have the weird sisters instead we have a ghostly possibly a woman but not yeah. entirely a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe a male voice comes out of an actress's mouth. Okay. Uh, ghostly sitting sitting there, again, very delicately working a spinning wheel as she's uh, 
giving her prophecies. And this, it turns out, is based on another Japanese traditional play from the old olden days. And so it would be the, the ghostly woman at the spinning wheel, while uh, an extremely foreign vision to us, would actually be familiar to Japanese audiences who know historic folklore and even the element where you see a giant pile of skulls behind her is from this old play. Is that right? Okay. Mm -hmm. I happen to think that she works better than the witches do um, in Macbeth's story. Uh, That's just a personal opinion from an admitted uh, Shakespeare neophyte who's basically every depiction of Macbeth I have seen has been in film (laughs) form. Right, right. Um, But I always just, when I I see them conventionally presented, I just never can quite get, wrap myself around the idea of of generals or warlords going out listening to what witches have to say. Mm -hmm. But I think part of what, made this such a film so remarkable is because from the very start when you have an entire building just seem to emerge from the fog from the air itself it's making clear you're not in a world of reality where you're supposed to take in real concerns also Mifuni has to be credited on his performance because just just the way he stares at this apparition Mm -hmm. and his level of Incredible fascination and yet incredible revulsion is so apparent on his very being <laughs> looking at it, spying on it, that you're just willing to just go believe it off the start. It could have even totally been witches. Right. But the fact that it's a single person who's weaving a thread, which was great, ties into the spider concept of weaving a web and is ties into the story of the story thread, so to speak. But when the spirit appears later. It's a s- super cool detail of how they appear as saying, bragging about all the horrible violence that that he that he, this warlord's going to befall upon the population, mm-hmm. and it's always shown by this character appearing from behind Mifune, uh, still glowing in white, but dressed in a different outfit and with a different weapon mm-hmm. to just. Um, uh, goad him towards further and further acts of devastation. Yes, for for all Mfume's power as a warrior, he is so used <laughs> by both the yeah. the spirits and yes. and real people around him. But all he knows is being a warrior. Yeah. So he just moves forward. Yeah, I look at this film, and I here I see Kurosawa trying to, ju- trying to give this presentation, make the presentation the main story, make the presentation the main narrative, and he gets his level of altruist detail into so much of what composes the frame. Where is Macbeth in the frame? Just mm-hmm. and and. Honestly, he shows filmmaking to like to a degree that I almost like find like pornographic because <laughs> I could just adore, for example, the just the textures of the wood of the buildings in the Spider Castle, just the different ridges on the suits. Um, him, his friend, and the 
leader who they both serve, they have different crescents right. on their helmets. And the position of the crescents is kind of shows a little uh, altimeter of their, of their moral culpability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Much like the hat from Ikiru, the helmet of the um, soon-to-be ex-leader makes certain appearances put off in a corner here and there as the story goes on. Right. I think this is Kurosawa's most disciplined film. It's paced very deliberately. And yeah. you know, not, not, nothing is rushed, but also nothing is wasted because there is so much detail, like the fact that the room where they plan the murder from has the blood of a previous murder still on the walls. Yes, yes. That composition of that is just exquisite because as he's plotting, mm-hmm. he is in this room and this blotch is right behind him. But r- between that and his... Uh, seated form is a whole little bit of a cage slash barrier, what looks to be a barrier, but is instead something like 20 different arrows all arranged vertically. Mm-hmm. Some sort of simultaneous cage that imprisons him and cage that protects him, all defined by his warrior status. <laughs> just But just done built and it just looks great it's a this is a luscious movie it's a movie where you can just you want to see it on a blu-ray on the highest kind or the on the on the largest movie screen that you can and you just can just sink into these details and the story is just carried along by just the movement and these compositions mm-hmm. more i think much more so than in the way of the internal motivations that have guided his earlier films like and whether it's mifune and his partner moving and the horses emerging and disappearing in the fog and emerging and disappearing mm-hmm. emerging and disappearing or how this one banquet hall um, he's more and more frightened and retreats to one corner first one corner than the other when he sees a, a frightening apparition to the sight of two guards trying to let uh, Mifuni know that a person's vulnerable, but they're not even shown. They're just shown as two lights that play upon the surface of the wall where they're sitting. Right. <laughs> there is so much stuff of the narrative is just drawn in from what we see. You used the words exquisite composition, which I think applies to so much of this film, but possibly its moment of triumph is to finally visualize something that so many Macbeth adaptations have struggled with, which is the prophecy that Macbeth can only be defeated if Burnham Woods comes to the castle. Various productions have tried to kind of visualize this to varying degrees of success, but it's a, it's a tough thing to visualize. Often you're left with people carrying bits of branches, but here Kurosawa knocks it out of the park. You have this overhead shot of the woods enveloped in fog and 
shaking in a way that visually looks like it is actually moving. It's this wonderful illusion and, and maybe the ultimate use of weather that Kurosawa keeps coming back to, to make what seems impossible to visualize come alive right there on the screen. Yes, it gets that sense of wonder that you want to get so many times from watching a film. Just, I can't believe the visions that I'm seeing out with my own eyes. Right. <laughs> that, that might be one of the single most notably striking images just because of it's so... takes an unusual thing that you can't conceptualize, you can't think of intellectually about woods moving in on stuff. Mm -hmm. Like... Like, even Ents don't really convince. <laughs> but when you look at it, damned if that's not the impression of a whole foreboding wood coming in to go get Mifune. Mm -hmm. And you don't, uh, you don't need any other opposition when that is arrayed against you. Right. And, it, and then it leads to this unique climax, which is different from Macbeth because... In Macbeth, he is attacked by basically the enemies who he's been murdering the families of. Uh, uh, yet, you know, here the Macduff character is gone. And instead of being attacked by enemies, he is attacked by his own troops who have turned on him when they see that this prophecy of Burnham Woods, which he, his entire leadership has been riding on, has now proved to be false. And then when the final ensues, it's like nothing anyone familiar with Shakespeare would expect. I don't even know if anyone who was familiar on the Shakespeare story could even conceive of the sheer amount of air hose being put to use <laughs> against one guy. Mifune completely convinces as a dude who's so desperate and his panic as the, uh, as he's running around amongst a fusillade of arrows, which look like they're missing like inches from his head and several of which get him. It's through a sustained sequence as he's running around different parts of this parapets of the castle and the arrows are all flying and he's screaming, shot like a trapped animal. And it leads to a just phenomenal final moment, which somehow still doesn't get rid of him. <laughs> he's, his, it is kind of the ultimate way you want to conclude a force of nature. If you're going to try to oppose him, this is what you got to come with. Right. It, 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 it's such a powerful image, the last arrow, which goes right through his throat. But you mentioned his performance, which, of course, he's a brilliant actor. But one of the amazing things about this scene is that it was real, is that he was he wearing a lot of halls after that. He man. was wearing blocks of wood under his armor. He had archers actually shooting arrows, some of which were meant to hit him. We see the arrows hit him. And then others of which maybe through illusion Jesus. miss him by just a bit. I mean, it looks to us like they miss him maybe by inches, probably gets more than that. But the audacity and the 
frankly, the <laughs> the danger that, that Infume must have yeah. been in while filming this leads this scene to have a level of realism we are not used to experiencing in these kind of scenes. Well, well I mean, it is a case of just like almost the world coming across coming alive to attack him because you so rarely see someone firing arrows at him. Mm-hmm. He just You just see him as he's running around from room to room and this corner or that corner will just have all of these arrows coming at it. And wow, like whatever like passes for overtime in the Japanese acting industry, uh, Mufuni sure earned it with that movie. <laughs> Makes you wonder... Like if there, how many um, other great actors are instead arrow-ridden carcasses <laughs> that are left on the cutting room floor of earlier <laughs> of earlier Kurosawa films? You know, for for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, we 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 talked about how Kurosawa would have a bleaker worldview as he went on, and. The difference in the way Throne of Blood ends and in the way Macbeth ends kind of demonstrates that because that iconic final arrow through the neck, which is kind of an unforgettable alternate version of of him being beheaded as he was in in the original Uh uh, uh, Mm -hmm. play. But the difference also is that when he's beheaded, the rightful heir to the throne then takes over as should be. Here, those characters have been eliminated. There is no rightful heir to the throne. And and we leave Throne of Blood basically in a state of utter chaos. Right? Mm-hmm. It descends into the fog from which it came, and maybe it always was, mm-hmm. this level of formlessness right. from where all the these ambitions were for naught. So th- this, this was such a magnificent achievement and it follows this group of four films, Rashomon, Ikiru, Seven Samurai, and Throne of Blood, which is uh, although not the only films he made during this period, marks a run that maybe can only be rivaled by Hitchcock in the late 50s to, to 1960 or Francis Ford Coppola in the 70s. It's just a handful of directors get a run like this. And what's amazing about Akira Kurosawa is he's just getting started. We have a part two that's going to include so many great films, including one which may be equal to the four we've been talking about here. Yes, but even a journey through these films has just been wonderful to experience. I mean, we could talk for hours on end on any one of his notable masterpieces, each one of which just can reward for many, many viewings. And we hope that you enjoyed our discussions on these different aspects of these films. If you have comments or suggestions or criticisms about it, you feel free to give us an email about it at our address of directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. We can be found on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast and our episodes are online on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. We are on Facebook for Directors Club Podcast and Twitter as 
DC podcast. So um, once again, uh, thanks guys for listening and I hope to catch you on a next episode of the Directors Club and the Akira Kurosawa Part 2, which will be coming up in 2018. Thanks for listening. Thanks all. If this sounds familiar, it's because ever since then, this has become a trope that has been repeated in film upon film, television shows, pop culture. It actually became known as the the Rashomon effect, and it is used so often. It was even used in uh, the little uh, indie film of this year's holiday season, uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi. (laughs) Huh. You know, I don't even remember it happening that way at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just, but I felt I had to throw that in. <laughs> to throw that in. <laughs> okay, we'll work our way back. I...